Welcome to Streams of Progress, where we bring you weekly conversations with many of the UAE's prominent leaders and thinkers. Each of our guests are actively contributing to the vitality of the UAE community and economy. Our goal on the podcast is to inspire you to drive progress in your professional and personal life. Hey everyone, this is Mera, and today on Streams of Progress, I'm sitting down with Talal and Tarek Baya, the CEO and CCO of Beza a tech company providing insurance and HR solutions. During the discussion, they shared their insights into how they've scaled over the last few years and their founding journey from their initial pivot to their successful fundraising round. So join us as we dive into the conversation. I'm sitting here with Talal Baya, the CEO of Bezat, and Tarek Baya, the CCO of Bezat. Thanks for coming by. Before we get into Bezat, what you guys are doing to the HR and insurance industry, Yeah. I want to get into your backgrounds, both of you. So if you could, Talal, let's start with you. So, you know, we're uh, Palestinians, um, and we were both born in California. And then in 92, uh, our father got a job in uh, Saudi Arabia. We went there for 10 days and didn't like it, so he moved us to Abu Dhabi. Um, Then we spent six years in Abu Dhabi, uh, four years in Riyadh, four years in Dubai, and then each of us went back to the U.S. for uh, university. Yeah, until I went to sunny California, I decided to pursue the cold in, uh, in Montreal. And when you say sunny California, UCLA? Bruins? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Bruins, okay. And you were pursuing a bioengineering degree? Yeah, so I studied bioengineering, um, and I uh, never actually worked in bioengineering, so I graduated in 2008. Um, which was not the best time to, to graduate, but uh, thankfully in, uh, in the GCC, sort of the global recession hadn't reached yet, um, or there was still, still some denial uh, about it. So I was able to come back to Dubai and get a job in investment banking um, in September 2018. And then uh, I think three weeks later, Lehman Brothers happened. Um, so it was uh, quite an interesting experience. What happened then? So Lehman Brothers happens. Investment banking is kind of not the most popular thing at that moment. Did you stay there? Yeah, work was a little slow, to say the least. Um, uh, so I, I did that for a year and a half. Uh, so they were able to stay alive for, for a year and a half. Um, and then I moved to private equity. Um, and I worked for a family office, basically managing uh, some of their investments with two other colleagues. Um, so I did that for about two years. Then in 2013, I uh, moved to Bezat full-time. And I just want to go back a second to get into your mindset. When you were pursuing bioengineering, what was your motivation for bioengineering? So, so I actually always wanted to be in uh, investment banking and private equity. I liked investing in stock markets and things like that. Um, but uh, uh, my dad, who was obviously paying for, for the degree, said, uh, you can learn business on your own. Um, you don't need to go to university for that. Um, so he said, you know, you should do an engineering degree. So I was good at biology. I was good at math. So I said, you know, bioengineering Sounds like fun. So that's why I went to bioengineering. And uh, Tarek, you went to McGill in Montreal yeah. and pursued a computer science engineering degree. Yeah. First of all, what was your motivation for that? And why so far away from your brother? <laughs> I mean, I think, uh, you know, what, what do they say? when uh, pull, Whenever I try to leave, they pull me back in, right? So, uh, no, I mean, for me, it was... Uh, 
I'm, I, I like to be around the hustle and bustle. Um, and being in a, in a city was definitely kind of on the criteria. So I remember getting into schools. I got into Urbana-Champaign in Chicago, which is one of the best engineering schools in the U.S., but was kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then I didn't get into UCLA, so Talal, you know, I'm still bitter about, about that. Um, but, you know, I started off as an electrical engineer um, and just realized that I really enjoyed the software part of uh, electrical engineering and refocused and went into computer engineering, uh, which was part electrical, part computer science and still allowed me to graduate with that engineering degree that, you know, every Middle Eastern father wants his son to have. Um, but then kind of similar to Talal, never, never ended up working in my, in my actual field. Um, I think engineering teaches you how to learn, uh, on your own, because some of the professors in in engineering school are are very intelligent, but not good at uh, bestowing their wisdom or their intelligence to their students. So you're kind of stuck learning on your own. Um, so I mean, I think looking back on it, it was definitely the right right thing to do. And going back to Talal, you said you were in investment banking, and then you went into private equity. What was the transition to founding Bezat? Was it something you noticed there, an opportunity, or what exactly happened there? So, um, I mean, you know, ideas are a dime a dozen. So, you know, I had a lot of different ideas. Um, and then my co-founder, Brian, who's, who's not with us today, um, was a high school friend who, who had known for a while. And we, uh, I was... Actually, the way it happened was when I was in investment banking, this uh, family office called me up and uh, they asked me where they could get the best time deposit rates or something like that. And this is, you know, a multi-million dollar family office. And I had no idea why they were calling me, but obviously it meant they were kind of lost. So um, I searched on Google. I couldn't find any results. So it kind of stuck with me at that point that, you know, uh, UAE has a lot of uh, a very competitive financial services sector, whether you look at sort of banks or number of insurance companies. Um, but there's not a lot of transparency and real-time information. So that kind of stuck with me. Um, and then a year and a half later, I was just sitting down with uh, with Brian, and I told him that you know it would be cool if we if we had a website where people can go find financial service products. Um, and he said, "Let's do it." And then I looked at him and said, "Okay, let's do it." Right. So um, it's it's not a, a sexy story, but that's how it happened. Right. So um, next weekend we met up. We just started sort of building the business case. Um, and then, you know, we shared it with uh, Tarek and he said, you know, I'll, I'll help fund this. Um, so that's kind of how that started. And going back to Tarek, you said you studied computer science engineering, but you never actually practiced that. You went to GE straight out of university? Yeah, I mean, um, I had two job offers at the time. One was, uh, uh, you know, I, I think I applied to 150 different jobs. I got two, two offers. Uh, one was uh, Intuit out in, in the valley, um, and the second was GE. Um, and GE just kind of offered the opportunity to travel, uh, and you know, it's it was the equivalent. The way I looked at it, it was kind of the equivalent of getting an MBA and getting paid to do it, because uh, you know, GE has one of the best leadership programs uh, anywhere in the world. 
Um, so, you know, at the time I thought they were just making refrigerators, uh, but quickly learned the hard way that that wasn't the case. So, so yeah, I mean, I jumped in. I was there for almost seven and a half years. And uh, what do you think you learned at G? So, like you said, it was a yeah. an MBA you were getting paid to do. What learnings have you applied now to Beizat, and how has that helped you grow? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's a unique opportunity that uh, that we had um, being part of the program. But but I think kind of going back to learning agility, which is kind of what I talked about early on with the engineering degree. I mean, we were in a new business and a new geography, working with a new team every four months. And uh, I did that for five years. And, and you're expected to leave recommendations to the CEOs or the CFOs of that business. So you had to look, quickly come in, figure out what you don't know, figure out what you do need to know, and then just go learn it. Uh, and then drive change within a four-month period. Um, so it's kind of like consulting, but the difference is you actually stuck around at the company. So if you made uh, shitty recommendations, it'd come back to, to haunt you. Um, so I would say just kind of the learning agility aspect and then just how organizations at scale work, right? The good, the bad, and the ugly, right? So uh, how do you build the right infrastructure? How do you build the right process? But then how do you, and I think this is kind of the challenge where we're, we're about to start facing at Bezat is how do you build that process and so forth, but do it in a way where it doesn't stifle the growth of the organization, right? So how do you, how do you build process in the right way? And now let's actually get into Bezat. Just for our audience, what's a quick summary of what Bezat offers? Because I know it does HR automation. It helps with insurance. If you guys have a quick summary to explain your offering. Sure. So um, our mission at Bezat is to make a world-class employee experience accessible to every SME. So really for focused on the SME segment. And basically what we do is we give them an HR administration benefits platform at no cost where they can manage medical insurance, payroll, time off, employee records, etc. Um, most SMEs don't really budget for any HR solutions. So we've been able to scale quickly by getting a lot of companies on the platform and helping them save time and money. Where does that go from there? Because right now you're in the SME, right? You're helping them out with, I'm assuming, onboarding as well in terms of their administration and then their payroll. So that means end of service and then the insurance. Are there additional services that could expand into it? Because now you have a wealth of information that could help out a lot of SMEs. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, going back to the mission, it's how do we make a world-class employee experience accessible to every SME, right? So how do we improve the experience for the employees as well, right? So as a SaaS company or a SaaS-enabled marketplace, um, it's it's a very honorable cause to go to any employer and say, we're going to help save you time and money. Um, and you can go into a substantial business like that. But what we really want to do is become the gold standard in the employee's own eyes, right? So doing that is, we're going to be doing that through affinity programs for the employees, right? So think about um, uh, when you apply for vacation time, you're going to get free trip cancellation cover from Bezat, right? Um, providing, you know, those values sort of exclusive of uh, or outside of the scope of HR administration necessarily. Um, so that's a big focus for us right now. Yeah, I mean, think of kind of the world of GE where, you know, just by being part of the, the company, you get a, a ton of perks, 
just as a result of you know whether it's discounted credit card rates or or, or discounts at gyms, whatever it is, just as part of being part of that conglomerate, there's no reason why SMEs can't experience the same, uh, have the same experience just by leveraging a platform, which is based on benefits, and then leveraging the scale of, of the companies that are on the platform. So just being an SME... Having out in your company actually activates so many perks for your employees. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, uh, an HR platform records life-changing moments, right? So whether that's getting a new job, getting a promotion, a salary raise, um, getting married, having a kid, getting a chronic disease, getting fired, right? So how can we help you through all those life-changing events to kind of improve that experience? And just correct me if I'm wrong, because I remember seeing Beza Benefits, the app for the employee side. There's a way where they can look up, let's say they need to go to, they have a chronic back pain issue, and then they'll see what's within their network, right? It's all integrated. So it's, if you think about a lot of companies, here's your insurance, and here's a PDF. Good luck going through the network to see what what's covered, right? To see the right clinic. That's all accessible within the Bayside Benefits app? Yeah, so I mean, Bayside Benefits has a couple of different modules today. Uh, we'll continue to expand that. One of those modules is what we call uh, Bayside Benefits Health, and that's directly linked to your medical insurance policy. And the idea there is to give the employee an intuitive experience on how to actually use their medical insurance. And, and as a result of that, saving time for the HR person who has to answer a ton of questions about an opaque industry, right? Um, and, uh, you know, today a lot, of the, a lot of the experiences that we have are online, but quite a few are offline, right? So medical insurance is still an offline experience. So one of our big challenges is how do we bring those offline experiences online? And I just want to ask Bezat, the name, it has a meaning, right? Well, what is that meaning? Yeah, it's the the uh, the term that UAE nationals use for change. Um, so so loose change, or, or in Arabic we say flus. Um, so that was the name we obviously started the company with, and back then we were focused on a broad range of financial services for consumers. Um, but then once once we started with medical insurance, we became known for that, and you know the name kind of stuck. So. You know, now we explain it as we help save you time and money. Yeah, even the name is memorable. Yeah, in all honesty, all we cared about when we were coming up with the name was to have something that's two syllables where we could buy dot com, <laughs> right? So credit to my dad. I mean, he's the one who who came up with the name um, because you have the B A Y and and the Z in there. Sometimes people think it's associated with our family. And that's exactly what I was just about to ask. There's no homage or anything? Not at all. I mean, my dad did come up with the name, but uh, there's no there's no homage to the family name. And uh, when did you guys start? When when did Bezat officially start? So officially, it was in uh, April 2013. Um and uh, I guess I can get into the story of how we pivoted. So we had a different plan initially, which was to become a, uh, a marketplace for consumer financial services, right? It wasn't our end goal. We wanted to be something like Mint.com in the U.S., where you can integrate all your financial services. But obviously, back in 2013, um, most banks didn't really have online banking platforms or anything like that. So we started with sort of a price comparison site. And when we launched the medical insurance in 2014, 
we started getting more exposure to the insurance sector. Um, and obviously, insurance is one of the biggest sectors globally in any country. And we saw that it had a very structural problem, right, which was... Um, in any other industry, when you sell your product to your customer, you want them to use it as frequently as possible, right? Insurance is probably one of the only industries where you sell something to people that you don't want them to use, right? So we saw that it was extremely commoditized because insurers were focusing on uh, risk underwriting, right, versus customer experience, and I guess rightfully so because... They don't want the. They don't want a customer experience, um, and they're using the same data sets to do all that risk underwriting. So it accelerated the commoditization of insurance, and we saw this immediately. You know, customers were looking at insurance as a commodity, and insurers were still looking at it as if they're providing a service. So we saw that there was a gap there that we could leverage. And I just want to go back to the founding aspect. You said Brian, right? Your other co-founder. Yeah. What was your history with him prior to? beginning based on so he was a high school friend um so i had known him since 2000 since 2000 um and then we both came back so we graduated at the same time um he went to university in northern california and we both came back in 2008 um and he started working for uh, an fmcg company and i started in investment banking um and we're you know we stayed friends brian works at bezat um but he's just not on this podcast um uh, so yeah, I mean, we knew each other very well. So there was, uh, we got along. We thought very uh, in the same structure, um, and we were both hungry to do something. Speaking of working based out, your offices—they're pretty large. How many employees would you say right now in the sales? Just in sales. Sales is uh, probably close to 40. 40. 40, and then you have your dev teams, you have your ops team, customer service. So going back to. April 2013, how many, how many people were you when you started? So we took an office, uh, in, or a friend had an office he let us use in Studio City. It was myself and one engineer, um, and then two engineers in Poland. So that was it for from April 2013 till uh, late 2015. That was pretty much it. So just a handful. Yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden, the growth. So how have you been handling that growth? And are there any learnings from that growth? Because you guys were a startup, and now you're pretty large. Was there anything you learned during that growth for your own HR purposes that you've thought about and actually integrated into Bezat, Bezat Benefits? Yeah, I mean, we... We started scaling very quickly um, in 2015, and in 2016, we went from, uh, I think, 30 to 80 people, um, and then have scaled since then. And obviously, you know, if you're not using uh, a cloud-based solution to manage those employees' data, um, you start forgetting things like, you know, visa renewal dates, um, even applying for visas, um, putting someone on the medical insurance policy, uh, messing up people's salaries. Um, that happens, right? And that starts happening at, you know, 20 or 30 employees. So you can imagine, you know, customers we've helped to have 1,800 employees, uh, what kind of pain points we were solving for them. And yourself, you guys use Bayzat, right? <laughs> <laughs> In terms of being involved with health insurance from early on with Bezat, have you seen any changes in the ecosystem, whether in this region or just even globally as a trend of 
consumer perception of health insurance? Um, so our uh, our hypothesis is that. Uh, the gap between customers and insurance companies will continue to widen, right? So if you think about it, insurance companies are the least suited to be selling insurance in the first place, right? So if it's travel, it's, you know, the airline or the booking site. Um, If it's life insurance, maybe it's the hospital. When you have a child, they'll sell you life. You know, home insurance, probably your landlord or IKEA, right? Um, So we're seeing that uh, insurance companies are starting to invest more heavily in insure tech. Um, It's a very fragmented value chain. So today, for example, on the medical insurance side, insurance company will outsource sales to intermediaries, uh, claims and customer service to third-party administrators, and then the risk underwriting and product development to reinsurers, right? So it's a very messy, fragmented value chain. And I think now they're all kind of waking up to the fact that we have to get closer to the customer, right, which is the employee. Um, and to do that, the best way to achieve that is to invest in, you know, uh, insure tech companies, Um, So actually, you know, we have two investors that are uh, insurance companies. Speaking of investors and just startup ecosystem in general, when you guys started 2013, it was still pretty novice. I mean, even the ecosystem is still pretty early on in this region. Have you seen any evolution since you started? I mean, uh, so again, 2013, raising around in 2013 was... uh, you know, it was just friends and family, right? There wasn't uh, there wasn't a lot of VCs around at the time, uh, and I think the conversation with our first investor, Beko, uh, the conversation I think started in 2013, 2014, and then the eventual investment happened in 2015. Um, <clears throat> But I, I mean, I think it's it's a great story in terms of what's happening in the in the startup ecosystem. I think we just have to make sure it doesn't become kind of a buzzword, uh, and we create true value for the end customer or for for an industry. Uh, but I mean, on all metrics you look at, it's definitely the growth is is amazing, and I mean. <clears throat> There's there's no reason why this shouldn't continue to grow given the demographics of the region and and so forth. I think kind of the gap right now that continues to exist is in later stage funding, right? And I mean I think the ecosystem is aware of it, um, but I think that's kind of the gap which is natural. The next evolution of growing the Mina ecosystem will have to be how do you bring players who are interested in growth funding into the region and so forth um so that's kind of the next hurdle uh, to tackle if you guys don't mind if we go into Bezat's own funding story because you guys have successfully raised funds numerous times and if you could just walk us through your journey from angel seed series a you guys also did a follow-on series a right so just how that started so in 2013 uh we raised so in mid 2013 we raised three hundred fifty thousand dollars um half of it was from friends and family and half of it was from individuals who we actually didn't know before um including individuals in the u.s um, and at that time, there was no Beko uh, yet. So was that from Angel? Yeah, it was Angel. So it was all you know. We took anything from uh, the biggest ticket was a hundred thousand dollars. The smallest was five or seven thousand dollars, right? 
Um, so um, once you know we raised that three hundred fifty thousand, we were like three. Uh, we were two employees at the time, um, and then I moved to Bezat full time. I became the third employee. So I wasn't actually even the first employee at Bezat. Um, and Brian continued to to fund my salary so we can save some money. Um, and it seemed like you know three hundred fifty thousand dollars, which is going to last you forever, right? Because you only you're not paying any office, uh, any any rent, and you're only three employees. Um, then, in 2015, uh, we opened our seed round, um, and uh, the way we did it was, you know, Beko had just started. I think they had, I think, two three investments under their belt, and I knew Amir because uh, he was looking at us in the angel round personally. Um, so we kept in touch, and those discussions were taking a while. Um, but we actually didn't really speak to any other VCs outside of Beko at the time. So what we did was we wanted to raise a million dollars. Um, we raised 500000 from individual investors. So again, uh, existing angels plus some new angels. Um, and throughout that whole period, we were talking to Beko. So that was probably a period of 10, 12 months we were talking to them. Um, and then finally we said, look, we have half the round left. Do you guys want to come in? Um, and then they finally said yes, and they came in for $400,000. So we ended up raising nine hundred in 2015. But it wasn't nine hundred in one shot, right? So the way we actually were able to execute that was uh, when we took the first money in the seed round, we basically put in the subscription agreements that, hey, if we raise at any other terms in this round that are better than what we gave you, we'll adjust your shares, right? So a lot of people wait for it to happen in sort of one shot, but our goal was just start collecting the money as soon as possible. And people are only comfortable giving you the money if they know that, you know, someone in five months is not going to come down, five months, no one's going to come five months down the line and get better terms. Um, then we started doing our Series A in uh, March 2016. Um, at that point, uh, it was it was the hardest round, but it was also the easiest in terms of Beko came in for it $2 million dollars um, and it took us from the time they came in in March all the way till September to close the other 1.6 million dollars um, I think our target was four we ended up raising 3.6 um, and then last year we raised uh, around eight million dollars in two different tranches so the deal flow from what you just said the deal flow actually shortened the time it would take from initial talks to the signing as you matured as a company your reputation in the market or the investors on board would vouch for you for further investment right yeah i mean the biggest uh, the biggest reason was probably because we chose the right uh, or the right investors chose us i'm not going to say that we were selective and we had like a thousand people wanting to give us money, um, but they selected us, and they were they had a lot of conviction in their investments. So, um, I think there's two types of VCs. So there's ones that uh, develop a lot of conviction in their investments and just want to keep funding those companies, and then you have a second type. Um, where they just want to invest in as many companies as possible, right? Um, so having that first type really helps if you're doing well, right? Because, um, you know, since Beko came in, they've come in in every other round we've raised, um, and they've actually made 
most of the introductions to our other investors, um, including Silicon Badia, who, who led our most recent round. And what challenges did you face? I mean, what you're saying right now, Bico helped a lot, a lot of intros, but did you have any challenges while doing these raises? Yeah, I mean, scaling when you don't have the money is, is quite difficult because um, every time we raise money, it was going to last us 12 months or less, right? So that meant there was no time to waste in terms of starting to scale the business now. Because if you, you know, something as simple as hiring people, if you wait to raise the money and then start hiring people, you know, four months will go by and then you only have four more months to show growth, traction, to raise again. So um, obviously it's a bit uh, of, of a roller coaster emotionally trying to hire people when you know that the money's not not there yet. But that's really... Uh, how we were forced to to execute it. So it's like multiple chicken or egg situations. It's like we want to scale, but we need the funds, but we need the funds for the scale. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think you just have to be honest with the people you're bringing in. I think, you know, now we're in a slightly different situation than we were back then. But uh, I'd say the first, you know, 30 to 40 employees that joined us, you know, we were super open that, you know, making sure they kind of knew the the risks they were taking. Um, and we just told people that we'll always be open and honest and transparent about where we are. You know, we're not going to tell you, hey, guys, tomorrow you don't, you're not coming into the office, we don't have the money. Uh, so we'll give you a heads up, but it's a possibility. Um, so those first 30, 40 people, you know, took, took risk. And you yourself, when did you come on board full? It was in 2015? Yeah, so I joined in uh, April 2015. Um, and the way Tla and I had talked about it is, you know, if we could raise that million dollar uh, seed round, then that would give us enough runway to, you know, at least begin the scaling journey. Um, so I, I kind of joined on board to do everything that wasn't HR tech product and marketing um so kind of all else and yeah i mean we we immediately like Tal said we just started hiring the first few sales guys uh and, and just grew it uh you know we talk about the inches right so it's all about getting getting those inches and that's that's all, all you know all we had to focus on and do you have any advice to give to would-be founders and entrepreneurs on how to go about raising funds in this ecosystem yeah, I mean, you need to uh, treat it like sales. So you think about it in terms of pipeline, right? So how many people have I had a first meeting with, second meeting, looking at my data room, evaluating term sheet, etc., right? Because um, you, can't, you can't focus on having one specific investor that you really hope comes on board so that you can meet your funding targets right so uh, that's very much like sales um, so everything has to be sort of probability based right so if somebody says they'll put in five million dollars but it's only the first discussion um, and my conversion rate there is you know 10 percent, which would be extremely high then i should think about them putting in five hundred thousand dollars at this point right um second one is uh always uh, meet everyone you can and always be meeting investors even when you're not fundraising, um, but you're always fundraising, so I don't think that's that's an issue. Um, but I, I see that you know the the companies who've been very successful in this region, um, you know, we're not obviously among the top funded startups, but they I've seen the difference between us and them is they're always 
talking to investors and um, they're always uh, selling their dream right um, so they've been able to do very well um, and you've seen them raise from you know huge huge VCs uh, globally um, and the third one is uh, study negotiation right so you need to uh, pick up some MBA books so I think I, I, the two I really benefited from are uh, bargaining for advantage which is an MBA uh, course as well um, and then never split the difference which is another book um, but you know you need to really understand how negotiations work so that you can uh, uh, get the right structure in place for yourself um, if you mess up first funding round then you're pretty much screwed uh, or you're gonna have a headache every other funding round you said you have insurance companies as investors because in one of your second share mentioned like you're part of our insurance brokerage so we acquired so they were our joint venture partner and then we acquired them in the beginning of 2017 um, because obviously insurance is a regulated insurance brokerage is a regulated activity um, and that's how we monetize today so um, we we acquired them in I think March 2017. So that that handles all the regulatory aspects yeah. of you guys being able to issue insurance. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's not that you work with different brokerages now. It's pretty much you are your own yeah. brokerage. Okay. And what what benefits has that given you in terms of having that? Yeah. I mean, I think the the main benefit is controlling the customer experience right so from sourcing uh from working with a with a prospect very early on all the way to getting them their cards i mean there's still a slightly bumpy road but at least controlling more of that experience and then obviously keeping more of the cash on our end we'll move on to just about you guys a bit more about your leadership styles and personalities so this might sound strange, but do you have any favorite failures? And what I mean by failures is something that maybe didn't work out at that time, but it set you up for success later in life. Do you have anything that you feel that you failed at, but in the long run, it was a good thing? I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot. Uh, I mean, uh, I think kind of the failure train is, uh, is popular right now. Um, I think... There's there's small failures that happen on a daily basis, and uh, uh, and then there's big ones that you know kind of that will stick with you for a very long time. Um, I mean, one that stuck with me is uh, getting an F in a geometry class in the tenth grade, and my my teacher telling me, Miss Thompson, saying you know you could have gotten an A if you just buckled down and did it, but because you're not focused, you're never going to pass my class. Um, and that stuck with me. And what, that's, you know, what I learned from that is uh, if you just work your ass off and that's, that's what you control, it will take a little bit of luck and a little bit of some other factors. But what you can control is how hard you work and how smart you work and just focus on that. The rest of the pieces of the puzzle will, will fall into place if you're in the right place at the right time. 
So we have Ms. Thompson to thank for that. Yeah, I mean, I was actually listening to another podcast a couple of days ago about the pleasure of sharing these kind of stories with people. So I've started to look for her on LinkedIn. So Ms. Thompson, if you're listening to this, thank you. Honestly, I, I never think about uh, failures in, in magnitude. Like this is a big failure. This is a small failure. Um, so uh, there's a lot of failures um, from, uh, you know, uh, uh, not letting people go from the company in the right way, um, not being honest enough with people in the company, um, uh, not hiring the right people, uh, mismanaging discussions with investors. Um, so all failures, I think, are equally big and small because uh, a small one can quickly become a big failure and uh, a big failure might not actually be that big in retrospect right so it doesn't really help to think about it in terms of the magnitude and just about you know what you learned from it so that the learning experience yeah i think that's one thing we look at a lot in our uh, in the interview process right so we'll ask candidates to walk us through a mistake they've made uh and what they learned from that and it's it's obvious where you know somebody just is thinking about what they learned from that in that interview versus someone who's really learned from the experience at the time and yeah. and they've taken it in and so it's it's critical that you know that people learn from their their mistakes and as you said you guys scaled over the last two years pretty intensely i'm pretty sure that had a toll in terms of maybe your, your weekdays weeknights or weekends did you have any specific habit or some something you would do to recharge yourself in downtimes because it takes a toll right this whole entrepreneurial life do you have any tips or coffee uh, a lot of coffee so i probably have six to seven coffees a day um but uh usually uh you know recharge by um uh you know reading a good book um but to be honest, I don't really get drained. I guess, you know, everything becomes a habit. So obviously, early on, you can get drained, you know, working so long, always thinking about things. Um, but the mind and the body is quite incredible, right? It can actually adjust to anything if you expose it to it uh, consistently enough. I'm pretty sure if you're having six to seven coffees, you're not going to drink because you're constantly <laughs> on go. I actually, this is my... This is my second coffee of the week I uh, I was on the same regimen as Talal I've switched to to green tea it helps keep me more even even keel but uh, I mean I'm, I'm with Talal on this like every few months I'll feel not that I'm getting drained but I'm not as sharp like I'm not seeing around corners fast enough uh, I'm living too much in today versus thinking about where we need to be tomorrow so that's the right time to just take a holiday Right, just take a couple of days, try to disconnect, quote unquote, as much as possible, so your mind just comes back sharper. Like a staycation, anything that's gonna recharge the mind and the body, uh, you'll end up. Work never leaves you, but you'll end up regaining that muscle that allows you to to see ahead, and you'll actually come up with a ton of great ideas, and you'll come back physically energized. Um, and and ready to execute some of that. So when you have a chance to step back, you can look at maybe the bigger picture. For sure. I mean, you, you have to do that on a daily basis, right? I think the biggest challenge that entrepreneurs have uh, 
is balancing strategy and execution. Uh, doing too much of one without the other doesn't work. Uh, if you're too focused on execution, you're not going to involve your business. So, I mean, one of our key principles at Bezat is uh, being the best is temporary, being better is permanent. So, to be better, you need to continue to have that strategic lens on. Um, so, that's that's every startup entrepreneur's challenge is balancing those two levers. Um, and if you're too focused on the execution, sometimes you need to take that step back to make sure you have the strategic view in, in place. Going back to your childhood, or even nowadays, do you have any hero or role models you look up to? I mean, I have heroes, role models for uh, specific things I want to be good at or, or do. Um, so obviously when I used to do uh, investing, you know, I was thought about Warren Buffett or Peter Lynch as, as heroes. Um, when I think about sort of uh, strategic thinking around product and creating sort of a platform effect. Um, you know, it's obviously Jeff Bezos. Um, I think about, so an interesting one was uh, sleeping habits. So I have a hero for a sleeping habit, which is uh, Elon Musk, right? So um, I realized that time is quite finite, right? So you have uh, work time, family time, and then sleep time. Um, so it's a zero-sum game. And uh, so I started training my body to sleep less, right, after I read about him. So, um, you know, I tend to find random people for things I'm trying to achieve and see, you know, how they do it and then try to try to learn from that. So what is, just out of curiosity, what is that sleeping regimen you do now? No, I'm still consistent in terms of uh, sleeping uh, in, in one one slot or one block, um, but I'll sleep now. So I was needed eight hours. Now I can sleep six hours, and uh, I have an extra coffee now. But I think <laughs> sooner or later I'll get over that. Um, but he does something crazy where you know he sleeps on and off throughout the day, like power nap. The Da Vinci method, where yeah. it's multiple chunks of yeah, yeah. sleep. And Tarek, do you have any heroes or role models? Yeah, I mean. Uh, I'm uh, I'm with Law on this one. I think it's uh, it's about finding something specific and uh, learning learning from from other people on a on a regular basis. I mean, the you know my father is a is a hero for for many reasons. My my mother is a hero for different reasons. Um, but I mean. Talal and I are voracious podcast listeners, readers, and uh, you know, every now and then he'll share something crazy with me, like uh, you know, trying to stick to a vegetable diet for a couple of months at a time. Uh, I think he picked that up from Steve Jobs, or uh, or this new crazy thing he's trying to do, which is sleep less. <laughs> So you engage in that as well? No, so I mean, I'm I'm pretty religious about my sleep as is. Like I try to get to bed by uh, by ten. So like during the week, I, I there's just no social life, um, um, and then try to get up well before everybody else gets up. I think I'm not a morning person, so that was really really tough. Um, but there's just something fulfilling about getting a lot done before anybody else is out of bed i think it sets the tone for the day you know you're switched on uh operating at 120 percent by 8 a.m it's uh 
it helps. And that leads into my next question for both of you. Do you have any personal routines you tend to do? Like you just mentioned, your sleeping habit, right? Where 10 p.m., weekdays at least, you're in bed. Are there any other personal routines you tend to have? The only other one I would say is I try to have uh, dinner uh, around someone I care about, uh, whether it's my mom, my girlfriend, my uh, my brother, uh, my other brother. Um, just as a way to kind of disconnect um, try not to eat in front of the TV or, or any of that stuff I think it's the only meal of the day where it's actually uh, mindful eating and around people um, but probably the sleep is the other one and then the last one is uh, on Saturdays just finding blocks big blocks to read uh, read something uh, Usually, each month it's a specific topic, and going into that topic in a, in a very deep way. Until now, do you have any personal routines? So usually, I'll, I'll wake up around uh, six, go to the gym for twenty five minutes, and then come to the office, and then get home around you know eight eight thirty p.m. Uh, have dinner, then uh, do a couple emails, and go to sleep. So. Um, that's pretty much uh, the routine um, but uh, uh, yeah I'm not much of a routine or habit person like I can you know it doesn't throw me off if you know my typical routine in the morning changes and speaking of just typical routines if there is any what does your typical work day look like just as CCO of Bezat or CEO of Bezat if you could just walk us through what does that look like for a startup at your level so today uh, got into the office around 8.30 because um, Tarek picked me up late um, and uh, did some emails in the morning, then this podcast, then after this I have an internal team meeting, um, then a job interview and then the company all hands meeting um, and then two job interviews, then a product team meeting and then one job interview. Um, then after those so that that will end at 7 p.m um then i can start doing some of my personal work so that's pretty much how every day shapes up and Tarek? yeah i mean i think uh uh i think what's what's important and what most people miss is either you manage your day or your day manages you um there's some days where your day will have to manage you when you're in a customer-facing role where you just have to drop everything and attend to something that's urgent. It's probably usually one day a week that that happens. Um, but, I mean, I try to keep one day a week just for internal meetings that just have to get done. Um, those meetings are becoming more and more, so trying to tone it back down to one day a week. Uh, there'll be one day a week where it's just out there meeting existing clients, uh, one day a week where it's going out with the team on meetings to see how they're prospecting or trying to get new clients. Um, and there's probably two days a week just dedicated to recruiting or, or hiring. So you both are you know, up there in the chain of management here, but you both mentioned your involvement with the interview or recruiting process. Is that only for key hires or are you guys still involved with even the day-to-day hires? No, with every single, uh, every single hire. So like interns... I guess anyone who's coming to the yeah. company. Yeah. So you guys want to make sure that the culture fit is there? Yeah, I mean, we, we spent a lot of time uh, trying to get better at uh, recruiting people and understanding how to recruit people and what kind of people succeed at the company. Um, so uh, 
yeah, we want to definitely make sure that anyone who's coming in is going to help raise the average of their team in some area. Yeah, I mean, I think we've always been very, very intent, intentional, sorry, on, uh, on the cultural aspect of the business. I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of the reading we did early on, so whether it's uh, the Zappos book or Good to Great or a lot of the things we were reading early on just informed us of the need to have culture done in the right way. I think our 10th hire was an HR person. Most startups wouldn't, wouldn't have done that. Um, now our biggest challenge is, one of our biggest challenges is how do we maintain that culture as we scale at this speed, right? I mean, in the next, you know, by the end of the year, almost half the company would have been with Bezat for less than 12 months, right? So that when you think about it that way, it's everything you had done before that is almost irrelevant from a culture standpoint. So it's, uh, it's one of the, the many challenges. And one way to try to fix that at the source is, uh, is recruiting. Um, but I think one thing we have to do a better job of is teaching the next uh, wave of leaders who will eventually be doing the recruiting uh, how to do it the right way from now. Um, so that's something we're focused on. So your company culture is also evolving as you scale as well. Lastly, I just want to ask, kind of personal between the two brothers, Tarek, does Talal have any unusual habits that tend to work, but everyone else would consider unusual? You kind of hinted at the vegetable diet. And how many of these have stuck, and how many does he still pursue? Yeah, I mean, he'll usually have one of these a year. That's uh, that's interesting, and uh, I'll get an earful from my mom about, you know, why are you not letting your brother sleep more, or why is your brother only eating vegetables? Uh, but, um, I mean, there's a lot of things that... Uh, that Talal does that you know maybe aren't uh, understood the right way at the first time Um, so you know one of our core principles is value debate over consensus right I think culturally in this part of the world you know if if your boss challenges your idea most people would take that to mean oh it's just a shitty idea I need to go away but what he's actually trying to do is make sure that we're debating it to make sure that the best ideas rise to the top right so that's an example of something that that he's done that will lead the company to a better place but maybe in the first few months we were going through that transition it may have been uh, been misunderstood. And Talal, does Tarek have any unusual habits? So the other thing I'd, I'd add, just maybe before he does and gives me a zinger, uh, he's a huge sneakerhead. So uh, I think he didn't talk about how he decompresses, but uh, you know he'll uh, he's a huge uh, huge sneakerhead. It's it's a relatively cheap habit. I mean, I could have something more expensive. Uh, well, actually, as we know, Yeezys can be expensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but those are rare in the collection. Um, so uh, Tarek is, is actually similar. So it's not that the habit is. Uh, uh, unnecessarily unusual but when you're sort of the leader in the company it could become detrimental right so um, you know Tark will throw out the first thing that comes to his mind and say it um, expecting you know people to kind of build on top of that idea and maybe just evolve it or move that that direction um, so I think it's purposefully a half-baked idea so that you know they continue it but then they'll just uh, 
you know, a lot of people just say, oh, he said it, so this is... It should be as is. It should be how we do it. So we see that among experienced team members who have worked in other corporate settings. Um, so uh, you just have to become very uh, conscious and self-aware of the fact that, you know, the, the human mind and the brain is built to kind of just think about leadership a bit differently than uh, how we think about it, right? For us, we're just normal people in the organization, right? But for others... You know, it's the humans are built, uh, um, uh, and their instinct is around the hierarchy, right? Tribal hierarchy, right? So that's how they always think about it. So when it comes from the top, maybe you're not supposed to question it. But in this case, you actually want them to build on what you've said to take the idea further. Yeah, and I think it's sometimes about doing things intentional that reiterate the messages. So you know, sometimes. On purpose, you know, Tom might have a really good idea, but I'll challenge his idea in front of everyone so people know that we should be doing that as an organization, right? And, you know, sometimes I'll see somebody on the team and they'll say, yeah, I mean, I could have, I could have told you that that idea wasn't going to work. And I'd say, why, did you, why didn't you say anything? Well, my team leader, I said, you know, that's bullshit. Either if you have an opinion, you have to... And you can back it up. You have to. You have to share it. It's your responsibility. All right. So we'll move on to our rapid fire questions. Short, long answers up to you. Talal, what book would you recommend? And you already mentioned two. Or are there any others? Or those are the two because those are purely negotiation books, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, we're big fans of jobs to be done theory. So competing against luck is is a book we we encourage people to read. Harik. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I haven't read enough to have. Uh, a favorite book or a book I feel that could be gifted at any one time. I think I'll go through phases of topics I'm focused on. So like right now it's a lot about how do I manage my time kind of going back to what I said earlier, how do I manage the day versus vice versa? Um, and the kind of the authority for me on this is Peter Drucker. Um, so the effective executive is, is a quick read, very, I mean, you get a huge bang for your buck in terms of the number of pages vis-a-vis uh, -vis what you learn. Uh, so that's, that's, a, that's one book I've been gifting a lot uh, recently. If you could post a message on a billboard on Sheikh Zayed Road, either going towards Abu Dhabi or Dubai, what would you want it to say? Like for Beizat or personal? Or okay, we'll say Beizat <laughs> has its own. Now, as a personal either message to the people of Dubai... Uh, yeah, I guess uh, don't be wasteful. In, in what terms? Wasteful as in recycle more or wasteful as Everything, in... Everything, right? In life. So in, in environment, with your time, uh, with opportunities. Um, but yeah, definitely with the, with the environment. So I, uh, you know, I think it's a phrase that applies... Uh, everywhere in your life so it's like be conscious of your resources whether it's time whether it's yeah, yeah. dark do you have a message it's probably a message that I'd want to see every day for myself personally uh, and I think it's probably a message that's applicable to a lot of us in our generation is stop and smell the roses I think uh, you know Tla and I are kind of the kind of guys that are uh, always running uh, sometimes we could probably stop and smell the roses and appreciate a bit more what's around us um, and I think most most of us are that way right we're always engaged on some platform um, so just taking a pause and being mindful of 
where you are and appreciating where you are and being thankful for that is is under uh, underdone and is that what you kind of do when you do your getaways when you said you need that time yeah i mean i'm trying uh i'm trying a couple of different ways at cracking this whether it's meditating or uh whether it's just uh saying every every morning what i'm thankful for so i'm trying i haven't figured it out yet but uh, at least I'm trying to make an effort to move in that direction. It's like gratitude hacks or exactly, exactly, exactly. And do you guys have any personal hobbies that you explore either evenings or weekends? Or if not, is there any you would like to pursue? Um, yeah, I mean, there's no, I don't have any hobbies at the moment. Um, I think except uh, for shopping for sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a habit, not a hobby. Um, is it a habit or an addiction? <laughs> I mean, definitely, you know, something I could do when I'm older, like golf or something like that. I, I should definitely pick something like that up. Um, otherwise, you know, once you stop working for a living, then I think. I'd imagine you'd be very lost. Yeah, I mean, uh, I wouldn't say I have uh, hobbies that I actively pursue. There's things that I enjoy that I wish I had more time to do, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, being an avid photographer um, or whether it's going to uh, get a workout and more often. Uh, those are the kind of things I enjoy, but I just need to find the time to do them more. I mean, saying I don't have the time to do them today is not an excuse. I just need to make the time to, to do them more. And photography? You say, yeah. You, say photography, yeah. you enjoy Yeah, I mean, I have, uh, I have, uh, I have two Canon cameras that, uh, that I've been playing with, so started with something a bit more uh, more amateur and something that's intermediary. Uh, eventually, work my my way up to a a, a Canon five, uh, hopefully. But uh, yeah, it's just something I enjoy. I just need to make more time to to do it. And do you guys have any wish or dream initiative you would like to see Dubai implement? You know, we have Expo twenty twenty coming. Is there anything specific that you think? Dubai could benefit or the world could benefit if Dubai implemented such a thing? I mean, I, I think for Dubai's benefit and for the region, um, if they have, you know, the best universities in the world. So it would be nice to see something in Dubai that gets on one of these, you know, top 10 universities lists. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Talad has the, long, the long-term view on that. I think short-term view, I think we just need to the cost of living is still the cost of setting up a company uh, is still very prohibitive to bringing and attracting entrepreneurs here I think Tal is spot on in terms of the long term view if we can if we can build the build the right tech pipeline uh, talent pipeline and so forth it'd be easier to set up here but I think it just needs to become it can't be competitive to set up a company in Dubai it has to be more attractive because I think there's certain things that work against us being in the Middle East and so forth so you have to make it super attractive to bring people here versus just being competitive on a global level and I actually kind of like that long term view of how education will set up the future of what yeah. you're saying the talent yeah. pipeline lastly do you have any piece of advice you would give your 20 year old self if you could talk to yourself now yeah i'd tell myself to be more self-aware i probably uh 
would tell myself to have more educated opinions. So, I mean, to do more research, to read more uh, before having an opinion on something, uh, and where I don't have enough knowledge or information to have an opinion about something, if I'm not in a place where I can educate myself quickly, defaulting to somebody who's more believable in that area because of their experience, because of their uh, because of their own research. And thanks, guys. I just want to wrap up with one last question. Do you have any last word of wisdom you'd like to share with listeners, you know, would-be entrepreneurs who might be planning to start something who have just started something? Yeah, I mean, whatever you're building, whatever your product... Um, you need to really think about how you can differentiate yourselves uh, in finding uh, in acquiring customers. So how do you have a fundamentally different customer acquisition strategy than the competition? Because uh, unless you figure that out, you won't be able to scale faster than, than the competition. Um, and uh, you won't be able to have better unit economics. Tariq? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think one key thing is... Uh, you just have to work hard. I mean, there's no, there's no easy, there's no easy route. You just gotta put in. You gotta put in the the hours. You gotta put in the effort, um, and you have to be. You have to do it with conviction, and a certain level of uh, stubbornness. But you also have to be wary of where you may need to pivot or change course um, but there's just no substitute for hard work well thank you guys is there any place our listeners can go get more information either about you about Bezat? Um yeah just go to Bezat.com um, and click try demo and you, do you guys have any personal handles that people follow you on or is it's all just company Facebook. Yeah, my Facebook's like literally all Bezat posts. <laughs> Dark, anything? I, I'm with on this one. Go to Bezat.com, hit the hit the button for a free demo. You guys aren't on Twitter or anything like that? No, I mean, my my personal Twitter account's the Bezat account, actually. Because <laughs> I didn't know how to use Twitter when, when we started the company. And I used my email to, my personal one, to change it to Bezat, so... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not uh, I'm not huge on social media. I mean, uh, I leave that. Uh, the only reason I'm still somewhat engaged is just to see. It's purely focused, to, geared towards work. To see what other companies are doing on social media to try to leverage for for our own benefit. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you, Talal. Thank you, Tarek. Thanks for coming in. Thanks. You can check out this episode's show notes on our website at streamsofprogress.com slash Bayzat. That's B-A-Y-Z-A-T. We'd love to connect with you, so follow us on Facebook and Instagram or reach out via our website. If you can please take a few minutes to give us an honest rating on iTunes, this really makes a huge difference and improves our ability to reach more people in the UAE and beyond. We hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to seeing you next week on Streams of Progress.